If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine. Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. In the popular imagination, the Western Front of the First World War has long been synonymous with futility and deadlock. But in his new book, military historian Nick Lloyd argues that this was far from the case. In fact, it was a cauldron of innovation and an epic struggle against the odds. Nick has also written the cover feature for the March issue of BBC History magazine about this subject. And in today's episode, he expanded on these themes in conversation with the magazine's editor, Rob Attar. Nick, your book and your article for the magazine focus specifically on the Western Front. Um, Is it fair to say that this is the most important theatre of the First World War? Yeah, I think, well, it's the decisive theatre. It's the the theatre that ultimately defines who you know who wins and who loses on the first world war so you know germany effectively wins in the eastern front it dismembers russia it conquers serbia it conquers romania montenegro they they can they control the balkans and they win in that theater but ultimately they lose in the west and that's where the decision is taken and that's brings germany to the brink of collapse and of course with germany in collapse everyone else collapses all the other central powers so in terms of the you know the the decisive nature of the western front there's no doubt that it's you know it's absolutely vital who wins there wins the war and how far do you think you can tell the story of the western front in isolation or are the other theaters having a big impact on what's going on in um, france and belgium yeah i mean i think this was one of the challenges i had when i was doing the book is to essentially tell the story of one theatre in a, you know, a multi-theatre war. Uh, how, how can you do that? Because clearly the Eastern Front has a massive impact on what happens on the West. The Germans are fighting a two-front war, so they have to shuttle men back and forth and they have to work out what's going to happen to the Austrians and, and this kind of thing. So, you know, it was a challenge in terms of telling the Western Front as a story without giving away too much, without talking too much about the other theatres or Gallipoli and the theatres in the Middle East is crucial for Britain. You know, resources are being sent uh, to the Mediterranean and that affects how many troops they have on the West. But nevertheless, I did think the the story of the Western Front is still quite self-contained. It's where the bulk of the armies of obviously France, Britain, Germany, and, and later on America will fight. It's their main front. And that really forces the pace in terms of what happens in the war. So I think if you look at a lot of the main characters in the story, Ferdinand Foch, Ludendorff, uh, Falkenheim, Haig, Pétain, the Western Front is their dominant experience of the war. And they, you know, in terms of the characters that I was trying to talk about, their war is in the West. You know, other things happen in the other theatres, but it's only periphery. It's only a sort of addendum. It's not the main act. So I think, you know, if you look at it from the people who are actually on the Western Front, that was where the war was. Um, and I think that's part of the story I was trying to tell. Now, the popular vision of the Western Front is that this is a place where 
Huge numbers of people are killed on both sides without that much progress being made over the course of four years. Is it fair to say that you would disagree with that view? Yeah, I mean, look, it's it's not just myself. There's been generations of historians that have tried to challenge the, if you like, the Blackadder myth of the war, uh, lions and donkeys, which still retains quite a hold in popular culture. Uh, the First World War, trench warfare, it's a byword for stupidity and callousness. So that has essentially become an established uh, social cliche in many ways or cultural cliche. Um, so I'm not the only one who's challenged that, but I think what I try and do is see it in a bigger context. So when I talk about the French war and the German war and the Western Front, and it's a terrible experience for all of the countries on the Western Front, but it's a different experience. And I think a lot of the problem with the British narrative of the war, it focuses solely on the British story. And of course, we look at it and say that was terrible and it was ultimately stupid and all these kind of things. And I think you have to look at what the Germans are doing and you have to look at what the French are doing. And I think if you look at all of that, you get a much more satisfactory look at the war and you can see what the Allies are trying to do, the tactics, the techniques, the technology they're employing. And then you see the counter. So you see what the Germans then do to try and work around that. And you see that for four years. So I think um, I think that's one of the strengths of the book is you get to see the the whole story in terms of the dance of technology and tactics and how they evolve and shape and the mistakes that are made along the way and the people who have insights that you know aren't capitalized upon and so you get to see the whole way it rises and falls. So I think going back to the lions and donkeys and the and the myths of the Western Front, I think you have to see the whole experience to be able to make any kind of assessment as to who was good, who was incompetent and all that kind of thing. So, you know, again, four years is not that long, actually, you know, if you think about it, uh, how long we were in Afghanistan and Iraq. But again, you look at the enormous changes that took place over that four years, which I detail in the book and, and obviously in the article that, you know, it's mind boggling how much changes it really is. And I think t too often we sort of think those changes were, inevitable or they were just par for the course when in fact they were radical they were revolutionary and they changed the nature of war i was interested in something you were saying earlier about how the different countries approach it differently so I, I wonder if from the french perspective they see it very differently because for them they were being invaded so this idea of a futility of war must be a bit more hollow when they were trying to recover their own country absolutely you you get a very a very clear sense of the war is near to them it's it's directly in their country it's it's close to paris it gets the germans get quite close to paris numerous times um so there is an obvious rationale for fighting the war there's a clear need to get the germans out of france and belgium and so everyone recognizes the war has to be fought you know how the war is fought is a, is a maybe a different question but there's no doubt that the Germans must be defeated. And I guess the question is, you know, the memory of the First World War is, of course, soured by, you know, the collapse in 1940 and Vichy and all that. But if you look at the story of France, it's very much about trying to, you know, avenge 1870, but also to break German power, which, you know, they believe they, they can't survive as a country without Germany dominant in Europe. So, um, again, the French story is very different. And... Clearly, tactics and technology is one part of the story, but the rationale for the war, I think, is, is much more secure than perhaps it was in Britain. So um, the Western Front is famously characterised by trench warfare. Why did this take place in this particular theatre at this particular time? Was it something about 
the military strategy, the technology of the time that allowed this to flourish? Yeah, well, you get um, you get purism maneuver on the Western Front. I mean, people think that it's trench warfare from day one, and of course it isn't. It's trench warfare really from the close of 1914, and by obviously the spring of 1918 when you get the German spring offensive. So most of 1918 is effectively maneuver warfare with uh, periods of positional warfare. So if we like the memory of the war and our image of the, the Western Front is 1915, 1916, a bit of 1917, it's the sort of middle period where you get the big trench battles and the attritional battles, which sort of define the memory of the war. So again, trench warfare is only part of it, but it's it comes about through a combination of factors. It's firepower, lack of maneuver, too much firepower, too many men in too small a space. So it gets constricted and you have enormous power of defensive weaponry, machine guns, rifles, um, and of course, trenches which protect men. And at the time, the if you like, the technology that you would need to go onto the offensive is not as well established. It's much harder to do. You have to coordinate artillery and infantry much more, you know, tightly than you would need in a defensive battle. You need to work out problems with communications, which they never really solve in the war. So one of the big, big problems is communication. So you can get communications up to the front line. You know, you can get um, obviously telephones, wireless, all that kind of thing. Um, once you go over the top, you're not in communication anymore. So commanders in the rear often don't know what's going on. They can't work out where to send reserves, where to reinforce, where to move, because you can you can string telephone wire, you can use wireless, which can be intercepted, you can use pigeons, you can use dogs, you can use runners, but they're not reliable methods of communication. And it's very difficult to move across no man's line when it's, it's under heavy bombardment. So communication is one of the factors that... Uh, you know, produces trench warfare. You see trench warfare everywhere in the First World War, but obviously on the Western Front, it's it's the most, you know, the deepest you get. You can't really have as much trench warfare in the Eastern Front because the the terrain is so vast. So you never get the concentration of force that you do in the West. So it's it's the it's a concentration of as a sort of small location, lots of men, lots of firepower means you have to go to ground. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. There are commanders that are too cavalier with their men, but there are other commanders that care deeply about what they're doing and, you know, are heartbroken and, and don't really know a way out. They don't know how they're going to do it. Sir John French, the British commander-in-chief until the end of 1915, talks about, you know, his room being sort of full of ghosts because he's he's lost so many friends. <laughs> Now, there were several attempts to break through with uh, notoriously battles such as the Somme, Passchendaele, Verdun. And these two have often been described as incidents of futility, of great waste of lives. Do you have any more sympathy for the commanders here and for the for what happened in these battles? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think the, the enormous challenges of command in the First World War has been, you know, I discuss in the book and it's very difficult to do things. There was the the quotation uh, by Charles Manjan, who's one of the French commanders in the book. And he says, whatever you do, you lose a lot of men. So, you know, in the First World War, if you make mistakes, if you don't get things right, if your artillery is not right, you can get absolutely slaughtered. In the First World War, if you get everything right, you do your artillery well, you move infantry up, you have good intelligence, you can still get slaughtered. So I think the, the problems of command, the communication, the problems of coordinating firepower, 
are beyond individual generals. And, you know, there's huge debates that go on during the war as to the correct sort of operation you should conduct, what kind of operations you should conduct, whether it should be breakthrough, whether you need to restore manoeuvre uh, to the war. You know, you, trench warfare is essentially abnormal, so you need to break through, smash up the trenches, and then, you know, get the armies moving again. Problem is, it's very difficult to do that because the amount of force you need to break the trench deadlock means that all the roads and all the tracks are all shattered and blown to pieces. It's much easier for, def you know, the defender to move up guns, ammunition, and, and contain the breach than it is for the attacker to move up manpower, cavalry to actually break out. And so by really by the end of 1915, a number of French commanders are saying, we can't break through, we can't do this. We need to essentially not fight in a manoeuvre-based way. We need to fight in an attritional way. So the point of operations is not necessarily to break through and gain territory, but to kill the enemy. So we need to utilise artillery and force them, the enemy, into counter-attacking where we can kill them. So we need to kill more when we attack, we need to kill more of the enemy than we lose of ourselves and essentially give up hope of a breakthrough. Or at least we'll take one series of trench lines, we'll stop, we'll bring the guns up, we'll smash it again and we'll go forward. But of course, for a number of commanders, this is too limited. They just think, well, we have to liberate territory. We can't fight this way. By 1917, you know, that's really the only way you can fight. You can't really do the breakthrough. But of course, the, the techniques and tactics they've refined over the course of those two and a half years eventually allow offensive warfare to take place again and manoeuvre to be restored and then finally decision to be arrived at. And another accusation that's levelled at the, the, the generals on the Allied side and presumably the German side too is that they were just too cavalier with the lives of their men they threw hundreds of thousands of young men into battle unnecessarily. Is it the case that they were uncaring about these men or was it simply they just had no better option? I think it depends. I mean, there's certain some commanders that are, you know, see the world in sort of a more of a sort of stark fashion and they, they want to do what is necessary in the sort of an orgy of violence to get the thing done. And if they have to throw people at it, they will do because they that's in a sense all they've got. So they could throw men at the problem and try, try and break through. But of course that that changes if you, you know, that in a sense early on in the war you have lots of manpower and you don't necessarily have the weaponry. And if you have to do things, then you may uh, you may have to sort of mass men, mass battalions at a certain point and hope to punch through. Obviously, by 1916, the French are weakening. They don't have the manpower. They have to increasingly replace manpower with, with material, with uh, guns and things. By 1917, the British are running out of men, so they have to rely more on mechanical means, air power, more artillery, tanks, and you know, fire, infantry firepower. So the infantry battalion... It's loads more weapons, so that the firepower of an infantry battalion in 1918 is is incomparable to 1914. So there's a lot more machine guns, mortars, rifle grenades. You can go on. So they increasingly have to do that. That's a necessity because they don't have the manpower, and so it's also it's more effective. And so I think there are certainly there are incompetent commanders. There are commanders that are too cavalier with their men, but there are other commanders that care deeply about what they're doing and you know, are heartbroken and, and don't really know a way out. They don't know how they're going to do it. So John French, the British commander-in-chief until the end of 1915, talks about, you know, his room being sort of full of ghosts 
because he's he's lost so many friends. And, you know, you, you don't have to go far in the war to, to see, you know, generals that lose close family members. Um, there's one French general, uh, Castelnau, he, he loses three sons. So it's, you know, the, the Ferdinand Foch loses his only son. So they, they the war touches them deeply and they know how costly it is, but it's a big war. And if you've got millions of men on one side and million, millions of men on the other, then huge casualties are a given. I guess the debate in Britain is whether we could have done it with slightly fewer casualties, whether everything was justified. And I think that debate will go on. But it's almost inevitable, given the size and complexity of the armies, the, the enormous carnage it's going to produce. And again, even if you do everything right, there's not necessarily an easy route out, or at least not until later on in the war. So in, in your piece, you argue that the Western Front actually saw a great amount of innovation. It wasn't by any means a, a static conflict. You've already alluded to a few of these, but what do you think were the most important military developments over these years? Well, in terms of technology, I think you've got to look at artillery and air power as being, you know, two of the most important ones. Artillery, you know, the, the amount of artillery, you know, goes up by, I don't know what, enormous amounts of guns and, and of course all the technology and tactics that goes with that so it's not just more artillery and, and better artillery it's more shells more reliable shells different kinds of fuses for the shells which allow much more accurate and effective destruction of targets um, a whole technological race is on to work out how to do counter battery fire so how to take out enemy guns that you can't see so you have things like flash spotting and sound raging, which is developed by scientists behind in British universities, develop these kind of techniques where they, they put microphones around the front, they uh, record the sound of an enemy gun firing, and they triangulate because of the speed. Again, don't ask me how it's done, but they triangulate the location of the enemy gun, and then they put it on a big map, and they work out where German guns are, and then they, they manage to destroy them. They have flash spotting, so they actually, you know, they have cameras and observers up and down the front to, again, to track the location of uh, enemy guns. And then they have to find a way to accurately hit it, you know, hit them. And that's quite quite a difficult task. So increasing, obviously, they use air power for spotting and they use things like poison gas for as a counter battery weapon. So they will uh, inundate German guns with poison gas, phosgene whatever it might be, that might not destroy the gun, but it makes their efficiency a lot lower because it's no fun trying to fire a weapon when you're in a cloud of, of gas. So increasingly they go do things like neutralising enemy defences. They know they can't destroy them all, so they try and neutralise them for a certain period of time when they will be needed so they can advance. So there's all range of developments. Air power is crucial, you know, given that the start of the war air power is... Well, extremely risky, had never really been used in the in a war scenario. The Italians had used it, dropped a few bombs in Libya, but by the end of 1914, reconnaissance from the air is vital. Uh, by the end of 1916, it's been fully integrated into artillery attack plans. They make maps from from the air, and they are able to integrate it with ground fire. And in 1918, you're having all kinds of different things. The British are experimenting with uh, coordinating with tanks, so air tank cooperation. So they'll put a wireless set in an aircraft and, and then try and help, you know, communicate to tanks where 
you know, problems might be, enemy batteries might be. So there's an enormous development. And of course, those two big developments, of course, we, we haven't really talked about tanks too much. By 1918, tanks are really important as well. So there's, there's you know, there's, you can just go on all the different developments, the steel helmet, you know, lighter machine guns. It just goes on signals intelligence. By 1918, the war is totally different than the war was in 1914. It's unrecognisable. And I think that has never really been understood, certainly in the popular mind. That's never really been appreciated how different 1918 is. And were these innovations taking place on both sides or was this one of the reasons why the Allies got the upper hand over Germany? Well, they were and they weren't. Um, the Germans do a lot of innovation in terms of tactics, they, they, they've got the Eastern Front. They can try things like infiltration tactics out. Um, although the French are experimenting with infiltration tactics in 1915, where essentially where you have fewer men and they're more widely spaced, they have different kinds of weapon systems, and their point is to essentially evade the enemy, so they to bypass trenches and stuff. It's very difficult to bypass trenches on the Somme because it's so thick. But the Germans can try this in the Eastern Front. The Germans never really developed tanks. They they don't see the need to do it. Uh, the, I think they developed the A7V, which is, again, it's not a particularly brilliant design, but they only have a handful of them. The Germans really, they are able to innovate in a human sense with, with infantry tactics pre- predominantly, whereas the Allies see much more of the problem being a technological one that will require a technological solution. So... You know, I think that's one of the reasons, certainly why the Allies invent tanks, is because they have the trench deadlock to cross and to work out. For Germany, they don't really need to do that. They're on the defensive in the West. They can practice in the Eastern Front. They can make more traditional type attacks in the East because the concentration of force there is so much lower, but not on the West. So again, it's only too late the Germans realise that not having tanks is a major problem. But of course, you can't you can't develop and produce lots of tanks in you know in 6 months it takes a long time beyond the technological advances what do you see as the other main reasons for germany's eventual defeat and actually how many of them were on the western front and how much was it about broader things such as a naval blockade us entry into the war and problems at home for germany i think germany's problem is that there doesn't seem to be a a properly functioning method of making war that the, the political and military ends don't really meet or the the political ends are too weak and the military aims become out of control so you know you you have an idea that you know germany should not have to compromise in victory we've won in the east we can reshape the world whatever we want and we're going to win decisively on the battlefield in the west we're going to scatter our opponents and then dom- you know dominate france we're going to turn belgium into a complete colony of germany we're going to dominate the continent when sort of soberhead should have said well you know the given the nature of the powers against you britain and france major powers global empires ru- you know ruthlessly committed to the war there is going to have to be compromises. And a numerous German politicians, the Chancellor Bethmann Holweg says this. So the German military high command, this is treasonous. So it has to be for the German, it's for the German army, it's almost like, well, we need to win totally or lose totally. There's no sort of assessment of we need to give the Allies something that will 
make it harder for them to continue the war rather than, well, we need to win on the battlefield decisively. So ultimately, Germany just can't do that in the West because she's against just too many people and they're too committed to the war. And once the Americans come in and once the Americans demonstrate their seriousness that they are committed to the war, then it's game over. And, you know, the Germans make the, the gamble in 1918 to, to strike on the Western Front before the Americans can intervene in strength, which is a terrible gamble and ultimately fails. You know, had Germany taken a different approach in 1918, it would have been, you know, more difficult for the Allies to win, undoubtedly, but they they gamble and, and ultimately they lose. So I think, again, it's it's a similar thing, I think, in the Second World War, that the political and military aims are total and they're not reflective of the enormous costs of the war, the coalition nature of it, the fact that there will have to be compromises, which just cannot be envisaged by the German high command. And although famously an armistice was signed between the warring powers, it's right to say that the Germans were facing total defeat on the Western Front by the end. Yeah, their army's breaking apart. They, they are in full retreat. There's nowhere else they can go. Clearly, they're going to go back to the Rhine and go back to Germany. So the Western Front is lost. I, I guess the the question is, you know, could they have continued to resist into 1919? And, and they could have continued to resist at some level. It's very difficult for the Allies to keep going. The Allied armies are exhausted. Supply lines are long and stretched. Thousands upon thousands of starving civilians they have to look after. So the Allies are, are, are you know, are tiring out. Um but ultimately, the, the factor with the German decision-making is, yes, we might be able to continue resisting. Yes, we can We can probably make it difficult for the Allies. But, you know, the American army is going to be so strong in 1919 that it's going to destroy the German army totally in 1919 if it continues. So the decision is, well, just to stop now because it's not going to get any better. Because the Americans have demonstrated that that they are learning quickly and they are there in strength and they will you know, they will be able to do terrible damage to Germany if the war goes on. So why continue? And of course, for the German commanders, the big question now is not necessarily the war, but the peace. And they need to keep as much of the army together as they can to put down Bolshevism and, and save Germany from revolution in 1919. Now, coming on to the experiences of the ordinary soldiers themselves, what kind of view did they have of the fighting on the Western Front? Did they see it as this kind of prolonged deadlock or were they aware of all the changes that were going on? Yeah, you don't tend to get the disillusionment too much in the in the memoirs and the accounts of, of the people that I've looked at. I think it can come later on, of course, but I think certainly in the in the British sense, most felt that it was a war worth fighting. It was a necessary war. And of course, they don't necessarily see all of the trench deadlock. They will see elements of it, parts of it. They might see one or two days of battle on the Somme. And then as a battalion, they might not go into action again until the spring of 1917. So they will not see that. But I think clearly they are aware of all that is being put into the war. They're aware of all the kit they've got, all the training they're getting, or the, the idea of they need to be doing this differently, they need to be doing that. So I think there is a sense, a real sense of this is a national effort. And it's you know, we've never we never had this much support before. Look at all the maps we've given. Look at all the supplies, ammunition, uniforms. We've got everything we want. So I think certainly for the British, there's a sense of, of you know, general, I don't say happiness, but there's a sort of contentedness that 
they're doing what they're doing as good as they can and there's no complaints about you know you get in other armies where they're starving and they have no uniforms and um you know they're in occupied territory so you don't necessarily get that with the british on the western front in your piece you write that modern warfare was forged on the western front what evidence can we see of this in later conflicts and i'm thinking particularly say of world war 2 yeah, I mean, if you look at 1918, by the end of the war, you have air power is becoming so important. You've got to have a, you know, an air force. You've got to gain control of the air and increasingly use air power to influence the battlefield in a direct way. So, you know, bombing and strafing and as well as supporting the artillery. You've also, it's clearly recognised that tanks are going to play a major role in any future war. Um, they still have quite a lot of limitations in 1918. Um you know, but those technological problems will be solved. They're clearly a weapon of war. The Germans didn't make tanks really in the First World War. They do in for the Second World War. They know they're going to be a key weapon. Maneuver is key again. Logistical support. Um, so there's again, I think going back to the earlier point, by 1918 you can really see the origins of Blitzkrieg and and the kind of fast maneuver war that we see in the Second World War. And other than the the areas we've already discussed, are there any other aspects of the First World War or, or specifically the Western Front that you think we need to get a new understanding of? Well, I think the, the technology is one thing, but I think just certainly for the Allied side, it's, it's, the, it's the coalition aspect of it. It's the French War, which is largely, you know, apart from Verdun, maybe sort of slipped from, from popular consciousness if it was ever there in the first place. So I think just sort of understanding the coalition nature of the war the fact that the Allies were able to work together, you know, to do something which was stronger than the individual parts of their their own forces. And again, look at the, you know, what the French are doing with tactics and technology. And I think that really helps to put the British story into context about the challenges that they were facing were similar challenges in many ways, but obviously doing it from a bigger starting point, whereas the British do it from a much smaller starting point because their army is much smaller. So, the coalition aspect is is an area of you know quite a lot of fantastic historical research over recent decades, and I think that will continue. That was Nick Lloyd. The Western Front, A History of the First World War, was published this month by Viking. And as I mentioned, you can read Nick's article in the March issue of BBC History magazine, which also has features on crusading queens, new discoveries about the Vikings and a forgotten figure of the Norman Conquest. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman.